Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. All excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. Amen. That's good news. Listen, before we jump into this text, um, I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, Pastor uh, Nyron Burke. He's not here right now. He was here in the first gathering with his family and then left to, to go do some stuff. But today is his 40th birthday. Uh, and so... I, I know I know we're streaming and, and we made a big deal about him the first gathering. I want us to make a big deal about him uh, now. Um, he's he's not always out in front in the public, uh, but but uh, and you may not know this, but this church absolutely does not run without Pastor Nyron Burke. Uh, and so um, you may be home watching. I'm not sure if you are, but Pastor Nyron, we love you. We praise God for you. We say happy birthday. Make some noise for Pastor Nyron. Amen. Amen. Well, while you're standing, why don't you join me in Matthew chapter 1 as we get ready to kick off our Advent series. This year, our Advent series is titled Encountering the Christ. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be walking through some different encounters with this one who we call Messiah. Amen. amen. Matthew chapter one. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you need some time, say hold on. I heard a couple. It's up on the screen. Amen, somebody. Matthew chapter one. Listen, I'm going to read verse 18. And I want you guys to jump in at 19 and finish off the chapter through verse 25. Amen. amen. Here we go. Here's the word of the Lord. It says this it says the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. That after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. You read. For her husband Amen. This morning, I just want to tag our text, a scandalous encounter, a scandalous encounter. Let's pray. Father, we are nothing but grateful that we get to stand before your presence as one people, worshiping the one whom you sent, 
whose name is Jesus. It's through him that we have life and we have life abundantly. And so, oh God, we pray, we, we pray, our prayer today is that you would speak to us through this text, that you might instruct our hearts, convict our spirits, encourage our souls, and that we might see you even more clearly. This is our prayer, oh God, today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. A scandalous encounter. Some of you may know this about me. But I am a huge movie buff. I know this because I, I've, I've said it to you often, and if you don't know that, you're either new or you don't be paying attention. <laughs> you know what, before I even get into me being a movie buff, I, I, I gotta say, there, there, you know, there, there is a group of people that are probably the most psychotic people in the world. And, and these are the group of people who begin decorating their homes and playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving is over. Just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, this is not a command from the Lord, but from I, you need to give Thanksgiving as proper due. But anyway, there's a rule in our house, because I have to beat my, my wife and kids off with a stick when we get around this time of year, that they cannot begin putting up decorations or play Christmas music until either the Monday after Thanksgiving or until all of the leftovers are gone, whichever comes last. But, but we've started this tradition in my house. We typically, the Monday after Thanksgiving is the day where we pull out all the bins and we start decorating our home and putting it up with the kids and we, all the kids are involved and we make hot chocolate and we got the Christmas music going in the background and then we start at the end of the night what would become a cycle for us throughout the month of watching our favorite Christmas movies together. And usually on Christmas Eve, we've, over the last few years, reserved one movie in particular to watch. You might be familiar with it. It's called Home Alone. It's about a little kid who gets left at home while his family goes to Paris, neglect. <laughs> and they leave him there by himself and unbeknownst to them or him, there are a couple of uh, thieves who are scouring the neighborhood, who have uh, identified this ideal location, this community of uh, very wealthy people, uh, and decided that what they're going to do is try to steal as much as they can over this holiday season. One of them even puts on uh, a, a police officer uniform and begins going door to door to assess whether or not these homeowners will actually be home during this Christmas season. And so he comes up and says, hey, we just want to take some extra precautions. There's been some burglaries in the neighborhood. Uh, will you be home on Christmas just so we can keep an eye on your house? <laughs> now, y'all know this was not in our community. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You ain't got no business knowing whether or not I'm home. But as they pull into this neighborhood, a few days, but come on, y'all, bring it back in. I'm like, as they, as they pull into this neighborhood, a couple of days before Christmas, they begin to look around. It's dark, and they see all of these empty houses, and then they look at one another, and they utter these words, 
Don't you just love it when a plan comes together? And, and I can't help but imagine that there's a similar scene that takes place as the father looks at the son and looks at the spirit and they look at each other as Christ prepares to become God in the flesh. What God has been planning since before the ages began is now here. The Messiah that he kept alluding to who would come and save Israel and restore humanity to God was now here. The promised one, the anointed one of David has finally come and God has given him a name. But as Matthew opens his gospel, there's a clear problem that must be answered. Does this one who will be called Jesus fulfill the necessary requirements of the long-awaited Messiah come from the line of David when in fact there are issues about his parentage? The previous genealogy that Matthew mentions in the beginning of this chapter tells us as much as he makes his way from Abraham to David and from David to the exile and from the exile to the Christ, one of the things that Matthew is careful to do is to not call Jesus Joseph's son, but rather the one who was born from Mary. I just have one point for us this morning that I'm out your way. Just like Joseph finds himself in this situation, Jesus often meets us in the middle of messy situations. Read with me in verse 18. It says the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way that after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. One of the things we have to take note of is context and culture. And so when the Bible uses this word engaged, we have to be careful of not thinking about engagement in the first century as we think of engagement today. You know, engagement today, there's a, there's a gentleman, he sets his sights on a young lady and he falls madly in love with her and he decides that he wants to spend the rest of his life with her. He goes out and, and buys a ring, gets on his knee and utters some eloquent words about his undying love for her. The only difference is that they can make or decide at some point in time prior to the wedding ceremony that this ain't no longer working out and she can give back the ring or she can try to keep it. <laughs> but but there, there is no legal commitment when you get engaged today. You can decide to cut it off. But in the first century, the engagement was a betrothal period where when you chose a spouse and entered into this engagement, it was considered an official state of being legally bounded to one another. It was legally binding. There were no way out. There, there, you were considered husband and wife at this point in time. Now, even though you were legally considered husband and wife, there were some benefits to being husband and wife that you couldn't partake of. Amen. I'm implying 
something there, and I hope you can catch what I'm implying about said benefits. That's as plain as I'm going to get this morning. But, but not only were those benefits off limit, but the woman also stayed with her family for about a year. And, and, and any sexual contact outside of that relationship, because they were considered married, would have been considered adultery. After a year, they would come together and there would be a week-long ceremony of, of, of partying and, and drinking. And when consuming the marriage or consummating the marriage had taken place, they would take the sheet and they would stick it out the window so the elders could grab it and verify by the blood that was supposed to be on the sheet, the sheet that she was actually indeed a virgin. And so Mary and Joseph are in this type of committed relationship that was legally binding and any sexual contact outside of their relationship would have been considered adultery. And yet the Bible says that it was discovered that she was pregnant, a product that naturally only takes place through sexual contact, but Joseph knows that he ain't had none. When I mean none, I mean sexual contact. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of Joseph in this predicament, I struggle on his behalf. And maybe it's not a big deal to you because in our day and age, we're accustomed to scandal. We're, we're accustomed to gossip and, and rumors. We're, we're accustomed to infidelity. We're accustomed to, to, to Maury Povich of he's the father, he's not the father. And we're accustomed to all of that. But that was not regular for them. So if I'm Joseph, I'm looking around like uh, somebody got a problem and it ain't me. Says it was discovered. Isn't it interesting that Joseph's first encounter with his Messiah is as a product of a perceived violation of the covenant he made with his soon-to-be bride? That the child that was on the way belonged to his girl but didn't belong to him. And the Bible goes a step further by making sure that we understand that they had not yet had sexual contact because it says before they came together. Now, the interesting thing about this is that uh, this wasn't the first time God had done the miraculous in giving birth to children. It wasn't the first time God had done something un unexpected in the birthing process. We can look at the testimony of Sarah who was beyond the age of childbearing. We can look at Hannah, whose womb was closed, and Rachel, whose womb was closed, and Elizabeth, who was up there in age. The only difference was that unlike them, Mary had not yet known a man. She even testifies to this herself in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to her and said, Mary, highly favored are you by God among women. You're so favored by God that he's decided to put you in a difficult situation. That, 
that's a sermon for another day. But he, he, he said, he said, you're so favored by God that he's chosen you to give birth as a virgin. And Mary understood the assignment. And so she had a question. I understand what you're telling me. But I don't understand how it's going to work. Because how can I, who have never known a man, give birth? See, sometimes God calls you into stuff that don't make no sense. And your ability to understand what he's called you to does not determine whether or not he's going to put you in that position to do what he's called you to do. Just simply put, you don't always have to understand what God's doing with you in order for you to be obedient. And so, so, so Mary accepts this responsibility knowing the social stigma that would be attached to her name for the rest of her life. She knows that the society she lives in will not accept her as a virtuous woman, even though God calls her highly favored. That the rest of the world would look down upon her. That the child that was born to her would always be looked at as illegitimate. And yet she says, I I'll do whatever you tell me to do. She knows that this could end in not only social stigma and divorce, but also the potential of ending her life. Because the penalty of adultery was a stoning by death. And yet she says, I'll do whatever you call me to do. Now look at the text. It says that after it was discovered, before they came together, Matthew lets us know how she conceived that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. What does this mean that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit? See, it means that God the Spirit supernaturally caused her to conceive. But, but we have to remember that this is implicitly creative rather than sexual. Just as God in Genesis chapter 1 said, let there be and there was... The spirit here says, let there be, and there is. Now, now, when it says, for, I, I like this word, this word from, and I'm going to get a little technical, but stay with me. When he says from the Holy Spirit, this word from is a feminine singular relative pronoun. That, that's, a, that's a lot. And I know you're, you're, just stick with me, right? Because different languages have different rules for grammar. And so there are certain tenses that exist in the Greek that don't exist in the English, right? But essentially what's being communicated here by Matthew is he's emphasizing that Jesus was born without Joseph's participation. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me, let me, essentially what he's saying is just because I don't need you to participate doesn't mean I'll leave you without any responsibility. Yeah. Let, let, me make, let me make it plain, right? I, I'm getting to that, that season of life. Well, let me start. I, I, I love to cook. I love to cook. I tell my wife sometimes if I, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably go into the, the culinary arts. Not, not for baking. That's too like specific. Like you got to follow the directions of baking. And I don't like that. I feel, it feels restrictive to me. I just want to sprinkle until something whispers to me, stop. And, and I just feel it in my spirit, right? But, 
but but I'm getting to that seat where I, I just I love to cook whenever I have the opportunity. But my 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 older kids are at that age where I can utilize their help at times. Um, but 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 here's here's the thing. Most times than not. I'm the one doing all the cooking. So I gather the ingredients. I go to the store, get everything I need. I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm going based off a recipe, I'm looking at the recipe. If not, I'm just, I'm just freewheeling and dealing in the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? Trying to make it happen. And so I gather all of the ingredients and I, I create what will become, in my mind anyway, a masterpiece. And, 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 and my kids, though they might be around for the process, they contribute nothing to the creation of the dish. However, even though they haven't created anything or contributed anything to the creation, I may be at a place where I have other things that I need to attend to. And so I'll make them responsible once I push that dish in the oven to be responsible for it. Like they, they can't just ignore the timer that I set. Like be watching their show and just forget like, oh, I didn't hear the timer. Or walk away and get caught into anything else. I've created something. I've put it in the oven, but I've made them responsible for participating and making sure that what I created actually finishes the way that it's supposed to. They have to be vigilant. They have to do something. What are the implications of this in this story? That Jesus's humanity had to be both of heavenly origin through the power of the spirit and have an earthly origin through Mary. It's important that Jesus has both full divinity and full humanity. We know that the entrance of sin came through one man, Romans chapter 5. And every descendant of Adam has sinned because he introduced it to his seed. Oh, but thanks be to God that in Genesis chapter 3... God gives a declaration to Eve where he says that one would come not from the seed of the man, but from the seed of the woman. But women don't have a seed. And so in here, we see the coming of what God proclaimed would take place all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That there would become one who would come on the scene and do what man's progeny could never do. Because he's fully God. And fully man. Now, now, what does Joseph think about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who helped Mary to conceive? Well, he did what any man would do. He wouldn't believe her. <laughs> Verse 19 says, so her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her. Secretly, this word righteous man, the basic sense of the word is one who is careful to keep the law. And Joseph understood that in keeping of the law, it would require the termination of the engagement. And so before his interaction with this angel, Joseph has made up his mind about what he believes about the situation and what he's prepared to do. For he knows that if he consents to marry Mary, it would surely cast doubt on his own innocence regarding the pregnancy. That if he went ahead and married her, nobody's going to believe him that he did not sleep with this woman. Everything in the world, everybody in the world is going to attribute this birth to the fact that they just couldn't wait. 
until the wedding day. And so in concern for her long-term reputation, Joseph decides to avoid exposing Mary to public disgrace, but still decides to invalidate the marriage. And so it's here at this point, we're at a critical moment in this text where things have happened outside of their control and yet we are going to need some divine intervention to reroute Joseph's mind so that he thinks differently about his circumstance than what his current predicament would have him to think. And so as we go into the text, the Bible says that after he had considered these things, made up his mind, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Now the angel addressed Joseph as son of David and for Matthew's audience, his hearers, this would remind them what is at stake and that the decision that Joseph had reached would not work for God's plan of redemption. See, in the loss of Jesus' royal, uh, in, in Joseph nullifying the marriage, it would mean the loss of Jesus' royal pedigree if he was not officially recognized as Joseph's son. So despite his previous decision, he's, uh, the angel calls him to take two decisive steps, two decisive actions. The first one he tells Joseph to do is to accept Mary as his wife. And then the second thing he tells him to do is to give her son a name. And in naming Jesus, Joseph will confirm his legal recognition of Jesus as his own son and therefore would make Jesus also a son of David. It was important for Jesus to be recognized as the son of David for only a son of David could sit on the throne. And yet, as important as this detail is, we can't miss the significance of him also being recognized as the son of Abraham. In verse chapter one, Matthew says this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, in Jesus being called the son of David, it lets us know that he now has a royal pedigree via adoption. In Jesus being called the son of Abraham, it lets us know that what he's come to do does not stop with Israel, but goes beyond them to impact the rest of the world. Being the son of Abraham carries with it a universalistic implication, meaning that all of the people for whom salvation was possible extended beyond the Jewish nation. Now, if you pay any attention to the genealogy that Matthew gives, you'll see some names in here that kind of pique our interest to whom was already considered savable. If you read down, you'll see names like Tamar. You'll see names like Rahab. You'll see names like Ruth. You'll see names like Uriah. And you'll realize that there were already people in the line of Abraham who were not of the Jewish people. Which lets us know that the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 6 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you came to fruition in the one who was now being born in scandal. And so Jesus here, or Joseph here, 
has to do this naming, this, this, this bringing him legally adoptive, we adopted in an adoption way into the family so that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne. Now, the name Jesus was popular in Judaism in the first century, and it was given to sons as a symbolic hope of Yahweh's anticipated sending of a, of a savior. And there was a widely held expression of hope that this expectation of a, of a Messiah would come to save Israel from Roman oppression and purify his people. But the angel here in the giving of this name, the specific name of Jesus, draws on a less popular, although important theme. Namely, that salvation from sin, not salvation from Roman occupation, was the basic need of Israel. And so he says, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There seems to be little doubt that the dominant concern in the first century was exactly this. Jewish hope that their political subjugation of the Romans would be lifted and the Messiah would come, establish his kingdom, sit on the throne, and save them from all of their earthly enemies and 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 the fact is that the angel here is communicating that indeed the son of David will come but he will not conform to the priorities of popular messianic expectation yeah. Yeah. simply put it means that just because you have expectations of the messiah doesn't mean that your expectations are his expectations it doesn't mean that what you want him to do when he comes means that what he wants to do when he comes is what he's actually going to do. It's interesting to note that Joseph was likely under this same impression. And even in this moment, he probably thought that the biggest predicament he had was the coming arrival of this child, not realizing that this child would be the one to atone for his sin. Matthew then drops a little commentary connecting a prophecy that was given to this situation. And he says, he says, he says, now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Now the translators of this text in Isaiah, they, they do something interesting. They, they take the Hebrew word Alma, uh, which means young woman, and they translate it to the Greek word Parthenos, which without exception usually means a young woman who is sexually mature, but is unmarried and a virgin. While the term does not explicitly mean virgin, it does suggest something other than a normal childbirth within marriage. And so when we look at uh, this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, it seems to indicate that while this prophecy was addressed to someone in the immediate context, right? Uh, Isaiah is prophesying this to Ahaz. There is an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. Something deeper was meant by the prophet than was completely fulfilled in that day. How do we know that? 
Because if you continue reading a mere couple of chapters later, this one who was to come is identified with a number of messianic titles that, that indicate that whoever this person was, he was more than just a regular old man. Because the Bible calls him Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. In verse, chapter 11, it goes on to say that, that this, this, uh, this root would spring up from the stump of Jesse and righteousness would be a belt around his waist. That he would rule perfectly uh, and judge perfectly. And who can judge perfectly but God? And so these titles given to him, Jesus he will save his people from his sin and Emmanuel, God is with us. They are names that are intended as titles of messianic identity. For in the name Jesus, it specifies what he does. God saves. But in Emmanuel, it lets us know who he is, that he's God with us. And so in these verses, what the angel is communicating was significant. That God took on humanity so that he could live like us in order to die for us. That he who was spirit would become flesh. That he who was limited would put on limitations. That he who had all power would experience weakness. That he who was eternal would taste of death. That Jesus had to be God. And he had to be man. For who could atone for the sins of man but another man? And who could satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God but God? That Jesus was fully God and fully man is of consequence. Not only in this text, but also for us in our lives. And so by the time we get to verse 24, something about this conversation with the angel changed Joseph and maybe it was uh, 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 maybe it was something to do both a combination of his experience with the angel this divine experience and also Joseph being a righteous man would have remembered these messianic passages and maybe after this conversation with the angel he's connecting what the angel has said to what scripture has already told him and it changes his perspective about this situation he finds himself in in either case the way he responds next is purely an act of faith. Because it says that Joseph woke up and did as the Lord's angel commanded him, that he married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. It's interesting that Matthew inserts this idea that he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son because the angel didn't command him of this. And yet it seems Matthew has an apologetic reason for inserting this statement to show that or to take away any doubt as to the supernatural origin of Mary's child. That, 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 that Joseph would think in his mind, I'm going to go above and beyond to make sure that when this story is told, people can only say, but God. That there's nothing that I'm going to do to put a stumbling block in the way of a situation that's already difficult to understand. So the Bible says he didn't have relations with her until after the child was born. 
You know, one of the interesting things about Joseph in this passage is that it almost seems as if Joseph is a passive, part, a passive participant throughout this whole scenario. Throughout this entire text, Joseph doesn't say one word. He doesn't say anything. Not only that, but he didn't even participate in helping Mary conceive. This was not even a plan that he came up with on his own. And yet, in spite of the fact that it seems like he was a passive participant, we see him central in making critical decisions that would aid in God's redemptive plan. For he listens and receives what the angel tells him. He marries Mary, and then he names the child Jesus, signifying that the legal process of adoption has been completed, thus securing Jesus's securing Jesus as the rightful son of David. And so from Matthew's perspective, what started out as an issue of parentage, in his mind, it has been resolved. For in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah has come. And in his coming, he brings the ability to change more than we could have ever imagined. Now, there's usually a phrase that people throw out when they want to help you do something, but for some reason they don't have the resources, the means, or the power to change your situation. And usually they say something like, well, it's the thought that counts. And we know what people mean. It means they had good intentions. They might have wanted to help. They may have even tried to help, but in the end, their help was actually no help at all. And so we credit them not for actually helping, but for thinking about helping. <laughs> but here's the thing. If I'm drowning, I don't just want somebody who knows what it feels like to drown. If I'm trapped in a fire, I don't want someone to just tell me about their experience being trapped in a fire before. If I'm dying of sickness, I don't need someone to just tell me about the fact that they've been sick before. When you're in a dire situation, you don't need someone who can only empathize. You need someone who can do something about it. See, empathy is good, but it doesn't change anything. But the beautiful thing about the coming of this one, whose name is Jesus, is that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he dies on the cross for our sin. That Jesus was tempted in every way like we are and he empowers us through his spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That in the full humanity of Jesus, it means he can relate to your life's difficulties. And yet in his deity, it means that he can actually do something about it. And that's the great thing about meeting Jesus in a messy situation. Is that Jesus has a standard of practice of not leaving you where he found you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That this God who saw your desperate need for a savior, didn't just stay on his throne in glory, 
but came down and wrapped himself in flesh and subjected himself to the limitations of the things that he created so that he could live perfectly under the law, die on the cross for our sins, raise from a dark grave with power and victory in his hands so that you could be close to God, received by God. That's why Paul writes that those who were far off have now been brought near. It's because of his sacrifice on the cross that we can have confidence that those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ can actually be saved. And it's in this gospel message. I, I love what John writes in this gospel message. He says, for those who have believed upon his name, he's given them the right. What audacity that he's given you the right to be called the son of God. What good news is that? The good news of the gospel that came to us wrapped in a scandal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, O oh Lord, for your word. We thank you that even the scandals of society are not enough to keep you away from us. That you don't see the griminess of earthly life and run in the other direction or leave us to ourselves, but you enter into darkness with us so that you can be the light that shows us where God is and who God is and how he desires to commune with us. And so Father, we thank you for your coming. What can we say but thank you? Thank you is not even enough for us to say. And yet thank you is all we have. And so God, we say thank you. We say thank you. We say thank you for all that you've done for us through your son. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder of Pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you. We love you.